We hosted Presbytery this week. Presbytery is the gathering of our region and uh, our regional, all the churches in our, in our area. It's a great honor to do that. It was a very inspiring time. The high point for all of us, however, was uh, had to do with uh, a, a couple of the people that you're going to see this morning. You saw Gunnar up there as he was conducting the choir, and you're about to hear from the other person who came uh, under the care of the Presbytery. What that means is they are beginning a journey of education and preparation towards the, the eventuality of becoming an ordained minister in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. The very first person who did that in our, in our church 30-some years ago, actually, I believe is here this morning, Stacy Broncoma. Where are you, Stacy? Raise your hand up, Stacy. Stacy was our very first ordained pastor. Welcome home. This morning, we get to hear from number 19, number 19. Julie Hawkins is also a daughter of this church. She's been here forever. Uh, her, her family has been a, an integral part of the life of this congregation. And uh, we've had the privilege of watching her grow up, baptizing her, confirming her, marrying her, sending her off into mission, and having her come and be a part of our team once again. You are going to be blessed when you listen to Julie preach. And you are going to be blessed to be reminded that we as a church, this is what we do. We raise up young leaders and we prepare them to be sent out. And the way you do that is not to sit back and cross your arms and say, Okay, Bible girl, show me your stuff. It is you lean forward as she brings God's word and you say, I'm with you. What is it that God has to bring to you, to me today through your words? So would you help your daughter in the Lord, Julie, would you help her get ready to bring God's word to us as you welcome her up this morning? You know, I trust that you are going to lean in with me because you've been leaning in with me my entire life. I am so grateful to be ending this big weekend in my life with my church family. And I am not cliche when I say that Chapel Hill feels like family to me. Chapel Hill is a part of my family. Uh, Joey and I got married right about here. Um, And this, this service in particular, you walked beside my family when my mom passed away 20 years ago, you're the service that when I say that my mom died 20 years ago kind of gasps and says, can it really have been that long? So I, f- I really do feel like you are my family, and I'm so grateful to be able to be here with you and to bring you the word this morning. Uh, we're going to take a break this weekend for World Communion from our journey through Jonah. Now I'm going to tell you that you want to come back for the next two weeks because you're going to want to hear about Jonah's victory lap if you could call it that. Uh, But we're going to take a break, and we're going to look at a man called Isaiah. Now, like Jonah, Isaiah was a prophet. He was a messenger of God, and he was sent by God with a specific message to a specific people at a specific time. But if Jonah was the poster child for what not to do when God calls you to do something, Isaiah shows us a different story. In Isaiah's call, we see that in An encounter with God is transforming. When we encounter the living God, we are forever changed. Let me read to you now from Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. 
And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. You know, as a person with a degree in history, there are a few things when I'm looking at a text that delight me, like preciseness. I love preciseness in a text. And that little snippet at the beginning of our text today, in the year that King Uzziah died, it tells us a lot about the context of Isaiah's world. Because historically, we can look at Uzziah, and we can see that Uzziah, he was the king of Judah during what's regarded as a golden era. Under Uzziah's reign, Israel or Judah experienced economic prosperity, military might, political power, religious fervor. Uzziah was a good king. And when you look at Uzziah amongst the kings that, that surrounded him, he was a really good king because he was surrounded by a lot of wicked kings. We're told in the Bible that apart from one major moment of pride in the temple, Uzziah was a king who sought the Lord with his whole life. So Uzziah's death, it would have been significant. Uzziah's death would have ushered in a period of uncertainty. And that's where we find Isaiah. He is sitting in that uncertainty, and he has this supernatural experience in the temple. And this temple scene is dripping with regal symbolism. We have the juxtaposition of the dead Uzziah to this king who is presently sitting on the throne. Now this king, he's high and lifted up. He's exalted above all other kings. It's like saying no other king can touch him. He is the most powerful. And more than powerful, he's marvelous. He's resplendent in his robes. They fill the temple. He is beautiful. He is regal. He is the most marvelous king. And he's attended to by these otherworldly creatures who are singing his praises. And it's obvious when we read this that, that this is no ordinary king. This king is the king of kings. This king is King Jesus. Now, I, I know what you might be thinking. You might be saying, wait a second. But Jesus doesn't show up till the New Testament. Jesus doesn't show up until right around Christmas time. He shows up as like a little bitty baby. How can Jesus be sitting on a throne when he hasn't even been born yet? And what Isaiah experienced was an appearance of Jesus Christ outside of his incarnation, outside of his life on earth. 
And one of the ways that we know this is because John, who was a witness to the life of Jesus, he tells us so. John 12, 41 says, Isaiah said these things, Isaiah said these prophecies because he had seen his glory and he spoke of Jesus. One of the reasons that Isaiah was able to prophesy about Jesus is because he had seen him with his own eyes. When we think of those famous, well-known prophecy texts where it says, the government shall be upon his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Isaiah must have had this moment of looking at Jesus on the throne in his mind when he made those prophecies. And we're told that Isaiah and the king are not alone in the temple. The king is flanked on either side by these marvelous, kind of terrifying, angelic beings with six wings. And these beings, they're not silent. The seraphim are calling out in this echo of praise. It's like a cacophony of praise. And they're crying to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Now that word holy is repeated three times because it signifies an intensity. It's almost like a severity. It's a superlative, but more than a superlative. They're saying that this Jesus, this king, he is the most holy. He is the most pure. He is the most marvelous. He is the holiest est. It's, it's beyond a superlative. And as they cry out, we're told that the thresholds of the foundations shook at the sound of their voice. These seraphim, in their worship, caused an earthquake. And I wonder what it would look like if we worshiped like that, because that's the type of worship that our Jesus deserves. When Joey and I lived in East Texas, we lived there for a time, we attended a small country Baptist church in a small country town. The town was called Liberty City, First Baptist Church of Liberty City, or FBCLC. Um, Try saying that five times fast. And our first Sunday at FBCLC, it was what I expected from a small Southern Baptist church. Uh, Everybody arrived in their Sunday best. Everybody arrived early in their Sunday best. Uh, It was a very traditional worship. Actually, the song um, Built on a Rock was a very familiar tune at FBCLC. They loved to worship, but it was what we expected. Um, Everybody knew when to stand up and sit down and shake hands and do all the things. And everything felt normal until, until we got to the final verse of the hymn, Be Thou My Vision. And the words of that verse say, say, High King of Heaven, thy victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. When this small Baptist congregation sung those words, they erupted in cheering, in applause, in shouting, in yelling. There was even some whistling from the congregation because they were just so overcome with the worship of their great great king, their high king of heaven, who won the victory for them. And in the three years that Joey and I attended FBCLC, any time a song mentioned Jesus as king or Jesus as having risen from the dead and defeated the grave, Jesus is coming back again, they 
would, they would applaud, they would cheer, they would overwhelm you with their worship. It was almost like the room shook. It was loud, and it was beautiful, and it was overwhelming. And I got to be honest, I really miss that. I miss that about our little congregation, because our worship of Jesus, it should be passionate. It shouldn't ever be anemic. When we say words like, out of the silence, a roaring lion declares the grave has no claim over me, we should cheer louder than we cheer for the Seahawks on a Sunday afternoon. We should be overwhelmed in our worship of Jesus because holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Amen? Amen. Now, I don't know if we'll cause an earthquake. I'm pretty sure that this building is structurally sound if we did, but we might startle the onlooker. And that's what we see happen in this case. That's what we see happen to Isaiah. Isaiah is sitting there, and he's taking in the king, and he's looking at the seraphim. The room has filled with smoke. There was an earthquake, and his response is, woe is me. His response is, I'm lost. His response is, I think I'm in the wrong place. I shouldn't be here. And then he starts to list all of the reasons that he shouldn't be there. He talks about how he's unclean. He talks about how he's impure and imperfect. He talks about the people that he hangs out with, that they're impure, that they're imperfect. And he realizes that his imperfection and impurity, it cannot exist with this righteous and holy God. It cannot exist. He can't hide it. He can't hide his sin. He can't fix it. And he cannot exist in the presence of God. He knows that his life is on the line. If you remember our guy Uzziah, the king, I mentioned that he had a moment of pride in the temple. Well, Uzziah went into the temple and he burned incense at the altar of the Lord. Now, that doesn't sound like a huge deal, does it? It sounds like Uzziah was worshiping, but by even being in the temple, he was breaking temple law. He was saying, I'm not content just to be the political leader of this people. I want to be their spiritual leader too. And God saw his pride, and God struck him with leprosy. And Uzziah spent the last 15 years of his life in isolation because he was unclean, because he was impure. Uzziah was buried in a field, in an unmarked grave outside of the city, instead of the tomb of the kings in Jerusalem. And Isaiah would have been familiar with this story. Isaiah would have been familiar with what happens when you are in the temple when you shouldn't be there. And here, Isaiah's not just in the temple. He's face to face with the king of kings. So you better believe that his knees were knocking a little bit. And what we see from Isaiah is words of urgent repentance and urgent confession. And thankfully, Isaiah's redemption is swift. Thankfully, his forgiveness comes quickly. Because the moment he cries out, one of the seraphim takes a momentary refrain from his worship and comes to Isaiah with a burning coal. He puts it to his mouth and he gives him this good news, gospel message. Your sins are forgiven. You have been made clean. Your guilt is taken away. Isaiah was as good as dead. His life was on the line, but instead he's given a new life. 
It is good news that was delivered to him with a purifying coal from the still smoldering altar of sacrifice at the feet of King Jesus. It is good news that God's grace runs faster than the judgment that we deserve for our sin. And you got to wonder, what's going on in Isaiah's head at this moment? Here he's awaiting a death blow, but instead he's given this good news of the forgiveness of sin. He's given a new life. It makes sense of what happens next. We see, we've heard from the seraphim, we've heard from Isaiah, but we haven't heard from the king on the throne yet, and now we do. We hear the voice of Jesus call out, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And Isaiah's response is one of eagerness. It's one of immediate enthusiasm. He says, here am I. Send me. As a response to the new life he's just been given, he offers himself up. And one of the things I find so interesting is that when Jesus calls out, he doesn't say, whom shall I send to do this task? Whom shall I send to go to this people? He, he doesn't give any description of the task in the ask, And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Isaiah gives the Lord a blank check. Here am I, send me. And if we read on in the book of Isaiah, we know that Isaiah's task, it was not easy and it was not small. Well, Jonah was called to go to the Ninevites and tell them that they were wicked. Isaiah was called to go to God's chosen people and tell them their judgment day was coming. Isaiah was called to go tell his neighbor that they were wicked. That's a difficult ask and a difficult task. But you might be thinking that at our history lesson at the beginning, we talked about how Judah was in a golden era, that they were experiencing religious fervor. How could they be wicked like the Ninevites? We spent the last four weeks talking about how terrible the Ninevites were. There's no way that we could compare Judah to the Ninevites, right? But We're told in the first five chapters of Isaiah that Judah's great sin was not that they weren't showing up for worship because they were. And it wasn't that they weren't bringing altars, or they weren't bringing offerings to the altar to sacrifice because they were. Their great sin was that it hadn't gotten into their heart. They were not a repentant people. They did not act like a people who had encountered the living God. They were not a people who sought justice for the oppressed and who saw the marginalized, who lifted up the vulnerable. Judah was going through the motions of religion, but it had not gotten into their heart. And on Isaiah's encounter with God, we see the correct reaction. It's one of urgent repentance, an eager service, an active faith, because if we're just showing up for roughly an hour and six minutes of religious duty on a Sunday morning, we're no better than the people that Isaiah was sent to. Instead, we're called to offer ourselves up in the service of a holy and merciful king. I believe that this is what James is talking about when James says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That's strong language. Faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. And it comes up against our belief that we're saved by faith alone. But I feel like what James is saying here is that if we have faith and it's not compelling us to action, then then our faith is dead. Our faith, if we have encountered the living God, should compel us into eager service. 
It should be an outpouring of our, of our response to God, is that we serve him. Now, I have a confession to make to all of you today. I don't get to preach that often, and so when I do, I really like to make it count. And so as I wrestled through what I was going to preach and I was thinking about it, my sermon initially was going to be a little bit of an announcement sermon. I had an agenda. I was going to tell you all of the great things that God was doing through Chapel Hill Missions. I was going to tell you, just list them off. Here's the ways that God is engaging us. And then, like a good salesperson, I was going to zing you and tell you where you should serve. God loves you, and I have a wonderful plan for your life. But this week as I was wrestling through the text, I was very convicted that it's actually not my job to sell you on where you're supposed to serve. If you, if you want to discern with me where God might be calling you to, oh, I am so happy to do that with you. One of my favorite parts of my job is sitting with people as they discern God's calling on their life. I sat with a couple who feels like the Lord is calling them to serve in the Middle East a few weeks ago. I sat with a woman who feels that the Lord is calling her to work in the prisons. I am so happy to sit with you and discern how the Lord is calling you. But I'm a firm believer that the church doesn't have a mission. Chapel Hill doesn't have a mission. Instead, God's mission has a church. God's mission to reconcile and restore and redeem the earth, it has a church. God's mission has us, and we are the ones who have to respond, here am I. So while it's not my role to tell you what God is calling you to, it is my role to say, rise up, church. Let's not go through the motions. Let's be eager in our service. Let's be a people who see the vulnerable. Let's be a people who seek out justice for the oppressed. Let's be a people who can't help but proclaim the name of our king in our overwhelming worship of him. Let's be a people who are eager in their service. Now, there's a fair amount of debate on that last phrase of this this passage, the here am I. Some people think it's here I am. Some people think it's here am I. Some people think it's just semantics. I do think that there is a difference, and I'm in the camp of here am I. And here's what I feel like is the difference. I feel like here am I, it's like a hand raise. It's a volunteering. It's an assertion. It's saying here I am. Here I am. Here I am. I volunteer. I'm your person. I'm your guy. I'll go where you need me to go. I'll do it. But here am I. It's like an offering. It's like walking up and saying, here am I. Take me. Use me. Send me. It's a bold prayer saying, here am I. Use me no matter what the task. Here's my time. Here are my resources. Here are my gifts. Here is my life. Use me. And I wonder if we are a people who are willing to pray that bold prayer. Are we willing to be bold and say, here am I, send me, no matter what the task. So we're going to spend some time right now doing just that. And if you are willing to pray that bold prayer with me, I would ask that as we bow your heads that you would just put your hands in front of you as a symbol of offering yourself up to Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, 
Here am I. Send me. It's a simple prayer, but it's a bold prayer. And we know that you will do mighty things as we pray it. We have encountered your glory. We're forever changed. We know that you have dealt with our sin. And so we offer ourselves up, saying, here we are. Send us. Send us as a people to be the ones who reconcile and redeem and restore your world. We pray that we would see great fruit from this offering. In your name, amen. God used Isaiah's bold prayer to bring prophecies of the Messiah, the one who was appointed and anointed to free the world from the bondage of sin. The same Jesus who we saw sitting on the throne as the high king, he took off his kingly robes and he put on the robes of a servant. Because this king, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for each of us. In a similar throne room passage in Revelation 4, we see Jesus not as the king on the throne, but as a lamb who looked as if he had been slain. And the praise that is given to this lamb is worthy are you, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransom people for God. We don't have an altar of sacrifice. We have a table of communion where we come together and we recognize that Jesus sacrificed himself. Our king sacrificed himself so that we might live.